Welcome to the Get Cyber Resilient Podcast. I'm Garo Hara, and today I'm joined by Joseph Blankenship, Vice President, Research Director, Security and Risk with Forrester. Joseph supports security and risk professionals, helping clients develop security strategies and make informed decisions to protect against cyber attacks. As a research director for security and risk, he leads the analyst team researching security leadership, the role of the CISO, infrastructure and operations, detection and response, and Forrester's zero trust model. His research focuses on insider threat prevention, email security, security operations, and security management. In the conversation, we covered the role of analyst firms and how to get the most value from them. Joseph's perspective on what's changed during his time, insider threats, ransomware, zero trust, and also how zero trust thinking aligns with email, third-party risk management, and we get the crystal ball out for his view of the future and what he's excited about. As always, there's lots here, so over to the episode. Welcome to the Get So Resilient podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara, and today we're joined by Joseph Blankenship, Vice President, Research Director, Security and Risk at Forrester. How are you going today, Joseph? Doing well so far. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on. You're coming in uh, to us from Atlanta, right? Yep, from stormy Atlanta, Georgia in the U.S., Good, good, good times. I hear there's a football team. There's rumors that like people are passionate about American football over there. Is that true? Well, in the Southeast United States, we're particularly passionate about um, uh, actually about uh, college football. So actually college football team football. Um, And if I just slide out of the way slightly, you can see the small, uh, I don't know what I would even call this. an Auburn University football and sign, maybe like a small shrine here uh, dedicated in the <laughs> office to Auburn University football. Sport as a religion. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, Joseph, look, we, we always start the show with uh, the guest kind of get, introducing themselves to the audience and just giving a, like a bit of a bio on how they got to where they are today. And obviously, you know, sitting as a vice president in Forrester, I'm guessing you've got a, a pretty interesting journey to get there. It'd be great to hear, yeah, how you landed in, in your position today. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it was interesting because I got into cybersecurity about 16 years ago with a company here in uh, in the U.S. Internet Security Systems, uh, and you know, it, it was interesting for me because I initially took the job not because I was some sort of a cybersecurity expert, but because you know, I thought the technology was really interesting. I thought you know, cybersecurity was an interesting um, problem to solve. But you know, really, I was I was a marketer at, at heart, uh, and I took this job, you know, working with the uh, the, the services team uh, at Internet Security Systems, and was there just kind of a little while, and I realized, wow, these are some really smart people. Um, you know, at that point, we were doing some very um, very cutting edge you know, threat research, publishing a lot of threat research. And so getting to work with some of those folks was really humbling and uh, at the same time, very educational uh, and was able to take you know, sort of the, the the passion I had for what we were doing at Internet Security Systems and take that to, a, to another role where, uh, where I had the, uh, I was very fortunate to work with a gentleman named John Kindervog. Uh, and John was our chief architect at this little company called Vigilar, where we both worked. Uh, John went on to leave Vigilar and become a uh, 
an analyst here at Forrester Research. And every now and then, John and I would talk, and he'd say, well, when are you going to come over to Forrester? I'm like, well, I'm not ready for that yet. I've got other things to go and, uh, and, and conquer. So I had a few more stops at a couple of other cybersecurity vendors. And then as we were, I was kind of wrapping up my, at my last, you know, vendor where I was working and doing some, some fun things. I called John up and said, you know, Hey, I think, I think it's time. I think I want to talk about this Forrester thing. And so, uh, after a very grueling interview process, if you ever have interviewed to be an industry analyst at any of the firms, it's actually a fairly grueling process. I think they're just trying to weed people out and see who will fall off. Um, finally, you know, got here and, uh, you know, really loved what we were doing. And, and one of the things I warned Gar about before I started do, to, to do this podcast is one of the things about analysts is we love to talk. Um, you know, some people will actually call us uh, pontificators. Uh, so yeah, I think anybody who loves to talk is passionate about their subject matter and has some knowledge, uh, you know, they have the potential to make a, a decent analyst. That's very cool. Uh, yeah, very cool. We get to work with Forrester a little bit uh, here in Australia. And uh, yeah, it's been a, a really good experience, actually. And you, so you've been there for five and a half years, right? And working right. in that security and risk area. As the, the VP research director for security and risk, what's your remit or your responsibility there? Really, my responsibility theoretically is to uh, kind of shepherd the, uh, the the research along. So I've got a team of analysts uh, that, uh, yeah, I always feel it always feels weird for me to say that I've got this. I manage this team, or I run this team. You know, you know, really, my my role is to help them get their jobs done, help them get all the great ideas uh, and wisdom that they've got uh, trapped inside of them. You know, out into research where our clients can access it. Right. So the analysts on our team include our zero trust researchers. So if you're following zero trust at all, um, it's the uh, the analysts who are leading that research. Uh, it's the analysts that are covering you know, topics like security leadership. You know, what are CISOs you know, thinking about and worried about and how do we educate CISOs? Uh, it's about threat detection and response. Uh, you know, things like uh, extended detection response, which is now a big topic, XDR, uh, as well as things like, uh, you know, email security, uh, anti-phishing, ransomware. So, you know, really that's what, uh, what our, our team is focused on. And, you know, you, you've kind of mentioned quite a few things that are sort of relatively new, I suppose, the idea of XDR and, you know, there's a big debate about that versus SIEM and the overlap, et cetera. And, and, and clearly, the, you know, our industry has evolved and it's, I would say, very complex and, and we operate in uh, an ever-changing, very dynamic uh, sort of space. Do you see that the role of analyst firms has changed over the years? I'd say yes and no. Um, I can re recall, you know, when I, I had never even heard of an analyst firm, uh, it, you know, when I, when I got into my, started my career, you know, some really long time ago, I'm not going to throw out a number because that actually would age me even more <laughs> than this gray hair um, does. Yeah, I'd never even heard of what any of these things were. And when I got introduced to analysts, I was like, wow, what an interesting job. You know, you get to, uh, to pontificate and you get to, you know, Kind of uh, evaluate all these the, all these uh, products and so forth. So you know, essentially, I don't know that the role has really changed in what uh, you know, what the analyst firms do. I think one maybe one one aspect, Gar, at least from our standpoint, uh, that we've realized is that we've got to get a little bit more practical. Um, you know, 
analyst firms have been well known you know, for for a you know long time for you know, kind of big strategy level vision thinking and and stuff like that, but they were never really you know, sort of geared toward you know hey here's how to go approach a problem here are the steps you should go take to solve that problem and getting that out into research and I think that's one of the things um, that has changed a little bit we're not going to not to say that we at Forrest are going to veer away from doing the strategy and big vision thinking but we're also you know going to uh, you know, publish a little bit more of the of the how-to uh, and you know kind of the you know, more, a little bit more of the practical side. That's not to say we're going to start doing technical guides and how-tos and, and things like that, but, you know, really kind of to, trying to help our clients, you know, solve problems in a real way, not just be uh, completely theoretical about it. Yeah, I get that uh, 100%. And, you know, we, we so we, we talked about how complex the operating environments are today, and that's across lots of different things, right? Yes, technology, uh, you know, and we've, we've talked about some of those or mentioned those at least. You know, risk management, legal, it's its a really kind of, I would say, kind of very complex uh, environment for CISOs to operate in in these days. And you've described, you know, the, the forester side of things, but I wonder from your perspective, what's the best way for an organization to work with a company like Forrester and, you know, ultimately get the maximum benefits from the, the research, that practical knowledge that you've just described? Yeah, I, I think one of the best things, like an end user that comes to Farzer, a CISO or a you know, security leader, or CIO, or, or, or what have you, that one of the best things they can do with the analyst firm is treat, treat the analyst firm and the analyst a bit like the extension of their team in some ways. You know, some of my favorite inquiries are ones where I read the uh, the question that comes through from our inquiry team. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's interesting. These folks have a phishing problem, let's, let's say, um, or they're trying to figure out how to migrate their their email security infrastructure from one thing to the next thing. And I'm like, oh, that's that's interesting. I get on the call and there's a bunch of people there, and I can tell that the the the, the leader is you know kind of just introduces you know Here, here's what while we're here today, and I'm going to let so and so run with the call and blah blah blah. And it quickly becomes clear that the question that was asked was not the question. What was really happening is there is a disagreement inside the firm where one side wants to do a thing and the other side wants to do a different thing or does not want that thing to happen. And what they're looking for is the third party to come in and be the referee, you know, right. uh, and hopefully no one gets a, uh, gets a red card in, in the, uh, in the interim. <laughs> right. Uh, and for me, that is, that is the most satisfying part of the, uh, the analyst role is kind of, I, I actually even sort of jokingly liken this a bit to a, to a therapy session, right. You know, you're kind of like, explain to me what's happening and mm -hmm. you know why you're why are you taking that that approach and blah 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 then coming back and you know asking some pointed questions to help them get to a solution and you know kind of the you know the thing that really kind of makes it go makes you feel good inside is when somebody goes aha that's it yes 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 now i get it you know and that is uh, pretty satisfying for uh, for an analyst so i think yeah, a lot of people you know, think of analyst firms of, you know, hey, these are the folks that can help me decide, you know, which uh, solution to buy. So I'll either call the, the analyst up and say, hey, which of these things should I get? I've got a list of three, which one's the best? Um, or they're only going to look at the evaluation report that we do and say, we're gonna only going to choose these leaders. And, and it's not really the, the best way to think about it, right? You're really trying to zone in on the 
on the vendor that's going to solve your problem for your enterprise size uh, the best. And I think that's one of the things that uh, talking to the analyst uh, really helps you get to even beyond the report and the tools mm. that we, you know, we have for download, uh, you know, to help you with that report. You talk to the analyst, the analyst can kind of help match you as the, as the buyer to the solution. So you may not need the, the leader solution, you know, that maybe mm. you may be priced out of the market, right? They actually may not be the best fit for what you need. They may not have the service offering that best fits you know, what, what you need to do, all that kind of stuff. So I actually think that uh, using the analyst as a sounding board and, and a bit as an extension of the team, it's better than only thinking of the analyst as, oh, well, it's, it's time to buy a thing. Uh, we should call the analyst and see what they think to make sure we don't buy the wrong thing. Or we can tell the board, you know, hey, we asked the analyst, they told us to buy this one, you know, so if it doesn't work out, it's their fault, not mine. You know, use us, use us as the sounding board and, you know, bring us in early on all these projects. Yeah, that's, it's it's incredible that you're saying that. So I, I remember it's probably about four years ago um, at a conference where uh, somebody was talking through exactly what you've just described there, where it's not always the the product that's the leader or what you know whatever language you want to use. That nuance of matching the tech to the organization, uh, it, and it probably sounds silly in hindsight, but it never occurred to me. You know, I'd always thought if it's number one on the list, then that's probably what you know is the best match for everybody. But actually. You know, when you think about it, that just doesn't really make sense. Um, right. Yeah. And you look, you've been around cyber for quite a while, I would say. And, you know, you, at the, the start of the call, you kind of mentioned um, things like XDOR, uh, you know, which is a sort of a relatively new uh, acronym that we can add to the very long list of acronyms in the uh, in the industry. Well, um, say that because one of our account managers here at Forrester, we were going back and forth on, on chat yesterday. And, and I'm throwing all these acronyms around. She's like, what is up with all the acronyms? And, you know, so I couldn't kind of, I kind of couldn't help myself. I had to tweet it out. So I was like live tweeting this conversation I was having with this account manager. And finally I told her, I was like, you know, this has been incredible. I had to live tweet this at the same time because, you know, we do have alphabet soup uh, for acronyms in this space. We really do. And the thing that gets me is that the same three letters can mean four different things, just depending on the context. Sometimes it's, uh, it's astonishing. Um, how, look, how have you seen the, the industry evolve over time? And maybe this is a two-part question because, you know, we, we, you know, we can clearly see there's an evolution of technology. And I would say a maturity of security leadership is another thing that I'm definitely observing in, in the industry. Um, but like when, when I think about an analyst uh, organization and somebody in your, uh, in your shoes, in your role, there's probably a, a little bit of you're looking at it um, sort of from a, like not a distance, obviously you're in it, but you're kind of evaluating a landscape. And I'd be keen to understand how you make decisions on what you think is going to be real versus just something that looks good on a marketing brochure and, and is probably not going to really turn out to be something. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the, the analyst role is, gives you a unique perspective uh, because, you know, just like some of those inquiries I was just talking about, right? So you're a fly on the wall as the decision's getting made and you're understanding the problem statements and, you know, why are they, is the buyer actually going to go buy a thing, you know, and, or perhaps they're lamenting the fact that there's not an elegant solution for what it is they're trying to solve for. Mm -hmm. You're trying to figure out, you know, if there's not a solution in the market for that today, you know, how do we go and, you know, how do we go and piecemeal something together or find a workable fix? 
and so I think that's one of the things that kind of you, you do enough of those, uh, you know, you, you'll see you'll see a pattern and say, wow, you know, this is actually an, an opportunity, you know, to go solve a real client problem. Uh, and you know, that that either becomes a, a product or perhaps a, a product feature at some point down the uh, down the line. I think the other thing that's really important, Gar, is as we come up with all of these things, right? Uh, whether it's XDR or um, you know, you know, UBA or SOAR or whatever you you name the acronym, right? Wh whatever the the thing is, if it doesn't have an actual outcome that helps move us forward. And it, that's that's kind of one of my measures of is it going to be a thing or not. So when we kind of, when we when we looked at when XDR was first coined, I think that was its first uh, kind of coined way back in 2018, right? It, it was kind of looking at what are we doing with Sims right now. We're I've always kind of talked about Sim as being this big data problem, right? And the idea would be that we're going to dump terabytes of data into this, uh, you know, this platform. We're going to sift through all of this stuff. We're going to find the bits that are really important. And then we're going to alert somebody to go do something about it, right? That is really hard to do. Yeah, mm -hmm. It's really hard to do uh, at speed and at scale and to get it right. And, you know, probably a lot of folks out there that have sims or have different technologies that shall be, remain nameless to protect the innocent or even the guilty, um, you know, you probably felt that pain, felt that struggle. And so when we, when XDR first kind of bubbled up, you know, it was kind of like, well, this big data approach isn't really working. So where do we find rich signal, right? Mm. Where do we find the thing that people can actually you know, be actionable with and then get finite with the amount of data that we're trying to analyze instead of, hey, let's start analyze the entire universe. Let's get finite with rich, uh, rich signal and, you know, to a large degree, that was endpoint data. What's coming off the endpoint where interesting things are happening, uh, where users are interacting with technology, where attackers want to go and gain control, uh, that actually gives us a lot of rich signal. It also gives us a control point. So the, uh, the, the other you know, kind of really important part of XDR is, that, is the R, is the response. Mm -hmm. How do we stop it when we see it? Uh, and so how do we take automated action and where's a good place to do that? Well, it's a lot easier to do uh, on the endpoint than it is someplace else, maybe at the network layer or somewhere. Like, are you asked me one question, like, how have you seen the, uh, the, the, the industry mature? Well, when I, years ago, when I'm working at Internet Security Systems and we've got those big you know, IPS appliances, right? Um, I don't know how long you've been doing this, right? But you'd take that IPS, you'd put it out at the edge of the network, and then you would dare the customer to turn the blocking signatures on. Because you turn the blocking signatures on, is it going to stop network traffic? Is it going to make it really slow? Or are we just not going to see anything, right? Any, any of the above could happen. And it would affect giant pieces of, uh, of a network. Uh, it could actually take a company down. Uh, I won't uh, won't tell you those stories like that on this podcast, but I can tell you that uh, there are instances where bad signatures may have been pushed by a vendor mm -hmm. and it had a huge impact. But so we, we got scared of doing anything automatically at the network. So instead, hey, we, if we if we shut down a process or we block an IP or maybe we isolate a uh, an endpoint or maybe we force a... Uh, 
a reauthentication or, or a password reset or anything like that for a single user, is that really that bad? Can we do that automatically without taking down half of a, uh, a company or a network segment? Yeah, we can do that, right? So now that, that response piece, it's really important. So those are the kinds of things when I look at something like XDR, and at first, I, I gotta be honest, I'm the, I'm the guy covering SIM. I'm the guy doing the security analytics coverage. So when the other analyst comes to me and says XDR, I'm like, no, we're solving that problem, right? We've got SIMs over here and we're doing really good analytics and we're solving that problem. But what we're seeing now is sort of that convergence between the two. Um, and my colleague, uh, Allie Mellon did a, a really awesome piece of research. I think she's blogged some of that at Forrester uh, called Adapt or Die. And it was really talking about where, you know, SIMs and security analytics and XDR are all gonna meet. And what do we need to be thinking about in terms of SecOps uh, to kind of to meet the future? Yeah, and, and it is that evolution, right? And one of the things that there's lots of conversations happening on, and I know you write about, uh, is the zero trust piece. And, you know, you mentioned the the sort of richness and the dialing up the signal, dialing down the noise, certainly in the endpoints and, you know, that the utility there. Um, that seems like a big thing is the the availability of kind of meaningful signal and, you know, endpoint is being obviously a clear example of that and user behavior. Um, I mean, there's, there's lots of places you can get context from um, for a zero trust approach. But yeah, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on that. You know, the, the evolution of technology to the point where zero trust is now possible. You know, you mentioned sort of segmenting controls at a user level rather than network level. And obviously you can do that at data uh, in, in a data sort of sense too. But yeah, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on on zero trust in general, given it's the, the sort of new rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a new rock and roll. And uh, actually, I, I think it's probably, you know, the evolution of rock and roll uh, a little bit. I mentioned earlier uh, that I had the good fortune of working with a gentleman named John Kendervog uh, year, years ago before I came to Forrester. He was very instrumental in helping me get to Forrester. Uh, John was actually the person who you know, kind of coined the term zero trust. Uh, here at Forrester, you know, way back in, uh, I think it was 2009, uh, you know, John you know, coined this. And if you'd ever heard John speak back then, you know, what, the way he would have probably kicked off his conversation is he would have called himself a recovering QSA uh, for a qualified security assessor for PCI DSS assessments. And the way that we you know, would used to do PCI assessments, right? The PCI assessor would show up with the questionnaire and the questionnaire would go kind of like, like this, where is all your cardholder data? And you know, the people around the table would kind of look at each other and go, we don't know what the cardholder data is. And then you would say, what systems you know, are connected, you know, card, you know, cardholder holding systems are connected to the network and can I get a map of your network? And so we can start plotting how the data moves around and everyone would kind of collectively shrug. So you're there for a two day assessment. And those are the, the that's the opening salvo of the two day assessment. And everyone would say, Oh my gosh, all of this stuff is everywhere. And so like one of the one of the, the ways to kind of solve for that was how do we get the thing the cardholder data segmented and segregated so we're it's not all over the network. Now the entire network's not in scope. How do we limit the scope? And that was part of the whole idea of zero trust is we can't let everyone have access to everything. We've got to limit the scope. We want to protect that sensitive data. We want to protect that cardholder data. So that was like one of the ways to do it. Unfortunately, kind of in the early days, the way to do that was 
segmenting a network, uh, using things like a firewall sitting in between uh, with ACL saying this, this, these users can go, this traffic can go, this traffic can't go, these users can't go. But uh, with the evolution of technology, as you said, we can get a lot more finite. You know, where we actually do micro segmentation via via software, we can, you know, have uh, risk based, uh, you know, user authentication. So, you know, depending on your role and the riskiness of, of you as an individual user at that time, and whether or not you're involved with this particular you know, data set, maybe you get access to that system or you get denied access to mm. that system. Uh, so the technology has definitely evolved to make it a heck of a lot more practical. So maybe not quite new rock and roll, but you know, we're, we're definitely, we've brought in some new instruments, you know, yeah. perhaps, and, we're, and our production value is a heck of a lot higher. Better, better foot pedals and some nice wah-wah and, and whatnot. Yeah, Absolutely. good times. So, I mean, as you described that, one of the, one of the things that, uh, there's a clear application is the idea of the insider threat. You know, that's something that we've we've been talking about for quite some times. And I know it's one of your uh, research focus areas. Right. Um, be very keen to get your thoughts on insider threats and how they can impact companies. Yeah, a- absolutely. I think insider threat is like one of those things. You know, I used to use this slide when I would talk about insider threat. And it had this, uh, this laundry basket that was turned over with all this dirty laundry all over the floor. And usually when I would show that, people are like, why are you having a slide with this dirty laundry? But it was the thing we didn't want to talk about, right? It's like airing your dirty laundry to say we've got insiders that are doing things that are either A, careless and reckless, or B, they're actively malicious, right? No one wants to talk about that stuff right up until the point that they have an incident. And they're like, oh my gosh, what are we doing about this? Um, and you think about the way an insider can either be you know, sort of weaponized in some ways, depending on the sensitivity of the data you, that you have, they may be you know, approached by an external entity and say, hey, we want you to go in and use your access to extract this data uh, and we will pay you for that. Or mm-hmm. we will allow you to you know, move to this, this country and promote you to you know, some kind of a, a, a great research position because of all this intellectual property you brought us or anything, anything of the sort. So the insider can actually be fairly impactful, mm-hmm. uh, especially uh, given if your access controls uh, are such that an insider you know, sort of has carte blanche to move around uh, your systems and extract data. And that's one of the things I think that uh, has been most telling with, uh, with where zero trust helps to address that insider threat, especially when we start getting into uh, monitoring behaviors, controlling access to uh, systems, and, uh, and oh, by the way, having a process for turning off access when employees and uh, partners and vendors are no longer employees, partners, and vendors anymore. Uh, that's a big one, right? The person goes out the door, uh, maybe you collect their badge to get in the front door, you collect their laptop, uh, but you failed to turn off their user credentials. Uh, so they still have, uh, they still have the ability to, to sign in remotely from some other device. Uh, that that's uh, obviously a problem, but insiders are impactful because they have knowledge and they have access. You know, so they've got two critical pieces, and you know, they actually may have you know, some idea of how to move around without being detected by mm-hmm. uh, the mechanisms you've got in place. Especially if your mechanisms are doing what most security mechanisms are, which are looking outside, because. You know, we're worried about external attackers. We're mm. worried about people from the outside getting into the system, uh, not necessarily thinking that uh, maybe one of our trusted coworkers uh, isn't so trusted. 
Yeah, I, I definitely get that. Um, it's it's funny you're kind of tweaking a, a thought in my head around. Uh, so we obviously you know we focus heavily on email at uh, the company I work for, and one of the things that um, when I think about that insider threat, that's particularly relevant when it comes to email, right? You you I think you've even written on this, you know, where you know, lateral movement through email is one of those very very common things, and I've been definitely having the conversations around zero trust as it applies to the email world and you actually you've written articles on this and uh, we'll include them actually in the show notes so the the trusted third-party fish is the catch of the day was the the article that you wrote which was was really good um and i'm going to quote it actually the in in that article you said our trust relationship with email has to change um so yeah for the folks who haven't read the article what does that involve well yeah yeah, I was, I was kind of joking with uh, with somebody earlier today. You know, we were talking about uh, how email has and hasn't changed. I was like, well, SMTP hasn't changed at all, you know, mm-hmm. in 30 years. Uh, what has changed is the way that we use email, uh, the way that it's been abused, and then a lot of our systems for uh, for handling email. Uh, but, you know, you think about it, right? Uh, if I, if, if without any other mechanism in place, Gar, if I send you an, an email, you know, kind of, you know, SMTP, you, I send it to you, you get it, nothing's in the way, right? So we're mm-hmm. trusting, hey, JB is an okay person. I, you know, it's fine if I get an email from him. I wonder what he sent me. I open that. Um, so maybe we can't be that trusting of, of all email, right? So we built all the mechanisms. We built gateways. We built filtering technologies. We start, we designed awareness programs. We told people not to click on things. And then inevitably, we all click on things. Even uh, even uh, you know, security people who have been doing this stuff for you know, a really long time, we inadvertently sometimes click on things. So kind of my, uh, my idea about the trust relationship is you, you, we can't always be trusting that the thing that comes from, from, a, uh, from a sender is trustworthy. Uh, and in the particular uh, you know, article that you, that you brought up, you know, it looked like it was coming from a trusted sender. It came mm-hmm. from a trusted IP range. Uh, it came from a trusted domain that had been spoofed and then sent from a trusted IP range. Um, so the problem became, if we didn't catch it in the filtering technology, the user could still interact with it. So then all you're left with is, can the user discern whether or not uh, this is malicious? But if they, say, if they see trusted domain, trusted brand name that I trust, I want to open this and interact with it. Now, if we haven't taken away the ability for that user to interact with that email, if we haven't like, maybe stripped the URLs out of the email, stripped all the script out of the email and left them with nothing but the context uh, so that they can't possibly you know, do harm to themselves. That's what I'm talking about when I say the trust relationship mm. has to change. We've got that sort of a scenario happening. You know, maybe we're just better off uh, either you know handling that in something like a browser isolation technology, or just completely defanging the email. So if the user wants to interact with it, uh, they've got to send it to the security team to release it or something of that sort. Sort of like what we do with quarantine today. Yeah, I totally get that, and I, it's it's a it's such an interesting one because I think it plays into the utility versus security. A discussion that's age old and i can tell you you know working in this space you mess with people's email in any way shape or form and then the end users uh there's a mutiny um, and that's all we've seen time and again is the security teams they know what good security looks like but ultimately you know it, they can't really get those very aggressive controls in place because other you know productivity is hit so bad what are your thoughts on things like um Things like DMARC as a you know a way to start locking out sort of um, you know, direct spoofing attacks or even the 
you know, the evolution of finding cousin domains out on the infinite web and, and doing kind of proactive takedowns to get ahead of some of this. I mean, it feels a little bit like whack-a-mole, but I mean, that's security, right? It's, it's, it's always just, you know, incremental changes and increases in, in security posture. But yeah, keen to get your thoughts on those kind of broader approaches. Yeah, yeah, I think DMARC is is useful for a, from a couple of standpoints, right? There's obviously the uh, direct spoofing attack, um, you know, standpoint uh, to stop those or at least slow them down, right? Uh, it's also you know, kind of getting back to the the, the concept of trust. Uh, you know, when we do have um, when we do get an e- email from a uh, from a sender, you know, with the with a DMARC record, um, and it's a trusted. Uh, tr- and they're a trusted sender, you know, now we know we can interact with it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also one of those things where the ISPs and the mailbox owners are also looking at DMARC as a, ma- as a matter of, do we allow this into the user inbox? You know, if they aren't actually, um, if, we, if, they, if we aren't actually sure that the domain that's sending is a domain that can send on behalf of the, of the sender, maybe we don't allow that email to come in in, in the first place, mm-hmm. right? So I think there are, there's definitely some, uh, some, some positives there. Um, you know, maybe it doesn't solve for every use case, um, but it does help with things like email deliverability, making sure that, a, that an email from a legitimate sender uh, from a legitimate domain gets to the, uh, to the recipient. Uh, it also gives us a way to to, to stop or slow down direct uh, spoofing attacks. Uh, your your other question about you know kind of takedowns, um, especially for big brands, I think it's almost a necessity. You know, to be quite mm. honest with you, uh, it becomes a security cost of doing business because um, you, you can remember the uh, you know the, the days where we had the uh, the mass spam and phishing attacks. You know, that were sort of spoofing like all of the the uh, the package senders. Uh, and uh, a lot of e-commerce providers just think about mm. the brand damage that that yep. does and the productivity hit. You know, to your point about productivity, if I can't trust that I can open an email from the company that's going to deliver my package to see where my package is, then I've got a real issue, right? So that was like one of those instances where you know, a technology like DMARC helps stop that direct spoofing uh, and then going and doing uh, takedowns of all the cousin domains, like you said, and maybe even taking those over, um, you know, so you're controlling those domains so they can't be rebought. I, I think that, that that actually is uh, it's worthwhile for a big brand. Maybe not for everybody. I don't know that everyone needs to go through that expense, mm-hmm. but uh, anybody that has got a lot of brand equity and needs to communicate uh you know, openly with their uh, with their user community. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's almost a necessity in some cases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that when I think about those kind of domains, they're often used for things like um, you know inbound phishing attacks, and generally you know that sort of ends up at some sort of ransomware or, or you know. And let's be honest, I man, ransomware is an absolute plague at the moment. Um, We've seen it actually over in the U.S. that uh, the Department of Justice has elevated the the ransomware investigations to the same priority as, as terrorism, which I think is a really uh, important signal to the world. Um, and it's hit the top levels of conversation here in Australian politics. Also, what's your take on sort of the national and the global strategies that you'll see kind of evolve over the coming years to tackle this problem that seems almost untackable? On some days, it just seems like really, you know, what do we do? I think what what um, what we're seeing is is finally policy to start catching up with the uh, with the threat level. Yep. You know, I've, I've had this notion for the longest time that at least here in the, in the U.S. and it, actually probably probably the most uh, most capitalist economies, right? In a lot of ways, 
the uh, the government has sort of outsourced cybersecurity to the private sector, right? So you you think about it. Um, let's just say an adversary wanted to come in directly attack your physical uh, plant someplace, right? Or they wanted to you know come over here and blow up a port, uh, and shut or shut or blockade a port where shipping couldn't come and go. The, you know, the Navy of any of our respective co uh, countries would respond to that and say, get out of here. You can't uh, shut down commerce like that. Now, what is the response for a ransomware attack or a large cyber attack that targets, uh, you know, even banking? You know, here in the U.S., they, they've, they've actually gone out after some really sacred things. They went after beer, uh, you know, with molten cores. Uh, then they went after the uh, the gasoline supply. And then lastly, they went after the, the, the meat supply. So you got beer and the holy trinity. <laughs> exactly, right? So <laughs> what was left to be done but uh, to raise the stakes um, in terms of the way we investigate these things. But no, actually, I, I think policy is finally starting to catch up. You know, on the theme of how has this evolved over mm. the 15 years, almost 16 that I've been in this in the cyberspace, yeah, I, I remember... You know, we ran all these campaigns at internet security systems trying to get anyone to care about security because no one cared, you know. Uh, it wasn't a, a conversation that uh, got held um, at the sea level. It was an IT problem. You know, hey, you know, here's some money, you know, get, get yourself some antivirus and a firewall and leave us the heck alone. You know, we don't really care about your security stuff. And we spent all this time and effort and energy trying to help people you know, get educated uh, about this as a, as a problem set. And here we, here, it took 15 years for us to elevate the conversation of what happened, right? In, in you know, kind of the, the traditional way that anything gets done in cybersecurity, it was a massive sort of an event. Uh, it was mm -hmm. an event that actually had uh, an impact beyond just the company that was being targeted, right? When you start targeting things like critical infrastructure or supply chains, and now you start seeing trickle-down effects, then suddenly people say, wow, this is actually a real issue. Mm -hmm. um, there are people outside our jurisdiction who are now targeting us uh, for this thing and now having an impact on the way people go about their lives. So now we have to elevate uh, the policy level conversation. So I, I actually think that we'll be, we'll start seeing uh, things get a little more proactive from a policy standpoint in the way that we defend uh, things like infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Biden's got plans there. We've got a, a critical infrastructure bill uh, working its way through our parliament at the moment, which I think has, I think has broad support. I mean, there's some nuances there that I think, uh, you know, private industry or private enterprise are, um, asking questions about, but I think the overall sentiment is, yeah, we need to, we need to take this stuff, uh, seriously. And, and, and maybe part of the, part of the problem is the complex supply chains as I think about it and, you know, the ways into organizations you, you wrote actually in that article that we'll include in the show notes, um, you know, the idea of third party risk management and, and supply chain, which again, just seems like one of those incredibly difficult problems to solve. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like root cause approaches, like where does that end? Oh, wow. That is a huge, uh, huge, huge kind of <laughs> uh, try, to, uh, try, try to unwind. Um, you know, I, I, and this is, this is like a, this is like the, the crutch that so many security people use, right? Especially uh, folks like myself, you know, you, you have to take it back to, you know, risk, uh, and really understanding, you know, what is your risk profile? If I know that uh, my my business is dependent on, um, you know, something like, uh, 
I, I hate to use the, uh, I don't want to use the example of the, uh, of the pipeline. I'm trying to think of another useful I example. Um, but if, I, if I'm dependent on anything, right, for, for transport, for raw materials, whatever it is. And, it's, and if you've ever had to fill out one of these awful, you know, third-party risk assessment questionnaires, you know, do you have a firewall? Yes. Do you have a policy? Yes. You know, it's probably taking it like a, a step or two further to really understand how that business is resilient. So if you're really dependent on uh, something in the supply chain is doing probably getting a little bit, making that process a little bit more, more robust. I think that's one of the areas where we're going to start seeing these uh, risk professionals catch up a bit uh, and say, it's not enough to have the checklist. Now we actually need some sort of a measure of resiliency um, you know, for that business, because if, if the thing goes down somewhere up the supply chain, what does that mean for us? Uh, and then how, what's our plan to recover? We actually probably have to start working that stuff into our incident response plan. Because like today, our IR plan is basically what happens if, it, if we're impacted here today, not necessarily what happens, you know, somewhere up the, uh, you know, up the supply chain someplace. Yeah, it's an, like, it's just such a huge topic. And then, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it, really, it almost is an episode at some point in the future if you're keen to just talk about that because it's uh, it just a, it's a whopper. But um, yeah, you mentioned the security questionnaires and, and there's times I think there should be support groups for the folks who have to uh, work through those because I, I spend a significant amount of time as did the rest of the, the team here uh, doing exactly those. And to your point, it often feels like... It's software to help with it. You know, uh, when they were like all Excel-based and you get the Excel-based one, yeah. We still get those um, and they can they just take so long. Um, but to, to feel, and I, I understand why we have to do them. You know, I'm not for a second saying that there's no uh, usefulness, but uh, yeah, man, they're 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 uh, they require many beers afterwards sometimes to, to kind of get through. Absolutely. Um, so one one last question because we're kind of heading towards time here, but I'd, I'd love to hear um, what you're excited about when it comes to emerging technologies or cybersecurity approaches and, and things like you know, AI automation, you know, we've, we sort of touched on SOAR, but I'd love to get your thoughts on, on what you're kind of excited about coming, coming forward. Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, I think we all get excited about in, in security or pretty much any, any tech space, right? Is, you know, what is the new and innovative approach? Uh, when I took this job five and a half years ago, one of the things I was actually really excited about was AI, you know, cause I had this vision that we were going to have, you know, AI doing a lot of the decisioning for us and the, the people were going to be over here, um, either tackling things that the AI couldn't find or trying to solve problems um, that we had never seen before, then train the new models and all that kind of stuff. So I was really kind of disappointed, uh, to be honest with you, that of the state of AI um, at that stage. Uh, because what, what I really found out was, hey, this is a building block technology right now. It's not, it's not the end state. We haven't reached the point of the autonomous security control yet. Mm -hmm. um, do I think we'll get there? We'll probably will, I think, uh, at some point, at least at some level. Uh, I don't believe that'll be in the next five years. Um, but if I look at, you know, kind of you know, what am I excited about? I'm excited about the fact that, you know, I remember, you know, doing my, uh, my, my SOC training, you know, at a couple of the, a uh, couple of stops during my, uh, my career. And I would watch these poor folks, you know, sit in front of a screen and they would get a, uh, get an incident in their queue or an event in their queue. And they would look at it and they would spend a couple of minutes running some queries. And I would watch them copy and paste from the queries into a, into a journal and blah, 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 then close the ticket and then move on. And I was like, if, if I had to do this every day for eight hours a day, 
I might, I might go insane. I've, I'm only here for a couple of days yeah. doing, doing this stuff. Um, we're, we've moved beyond that. To, we're actually getting to the point where we can automate a lot of that. Like you mentioned like SOAR, you know, so that's a great use of some of the, uh, the SOAR technologies. Uh, I think we're also getting to the point that we're getting away from hard, rigid rules that are written someplace uh, that we have to keep tweaking. Uh, that is one of the things that you know, technology like, or a, a capability, I should say, like AI gives us is the ability to learn um, from behaviors, right? As we're you know, seeing the same thing happen over and over again, now we can allow uh, an algorithm to take over. So maybe we're not relying on, on a uh, brittle rule uh, to always fire and get it right a hundred percent of the time so things like those th th those kinds of things uh, are, are pretty uh, pretty exciting i know that sounds you know kind of mundane but you know it's light years beyond uh excel being the number one productivity tool in cybersecurity, right <laughs> yeah. yeah it actually varies between excel and notepad which one is the is the most useful <laughs> I think the hardcore people use Notepad Plus these days. You know, it's exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. So I'm going to run something past you that I just can't get support for. Um, I think it's the ultimate approach in security, which is that we go back to Notepads and Abacuses. Uh, what do you think of that as a security approach? <laughs> no one seems interested. I, I feel like it's a great idea. We couldn't shut down the insider threat with that one, Gar. You know. Yeah, it's it gets. It, <laughs> It gets I'll tricky. Smuggle, I'll smuggle out your stone tablet. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go back to chisels. Uh, yeah, fun times. Um, Joseph, thank you so, so much for the conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to speak to you. And I genuinely, um, yeah, I look forward to hopefully at some point in the future, if you if you were keen to come back on and, and have that massive conversation about third-party risk management, because it is a whopper. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And um, yeah, have a good rest of your day there. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much to Joseph. Such a good conversation. As always, thank you for listening to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. Jump into our back catalog of episodes and like, subscribe, and leave us a review. For now, stay safe, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode.